0: Welcome to Our Data, a podcast about the public's interest in the era of big data. We explore the contours of the public's interest in the landscape of emerging database technologies. Blockchain, AI, big data, and the Internet of Things are pushing the boundaries of our imagination while challenging the ability of policymakers to respond appropriately and effectively. Join us as we talk to leading-edge thinkers and doers engaged in the design, development, and regulation of these transformative database technologies with a sharp focus on how they impact the common good.
1: Uh, welcome to Our Data, Ruben. Uh, today we're, we have a really important conversation with uh, one of the leading uh, thought leaders and action leaders uh, having to do with uh, data and privacy. Uh, Elizabeth Renieris is uh, one of the, like I said, globally recognized leaders in this space, founder and CEO of Hacky Lawyer, uh, and also fellow at the Harvard Carr Center for Human Rights Policies, we're we're going to talk about a lot of different things. But just to um, kick it off, I wanted to, um, and you get to direct this however you want to direct it, Elizabeth. But really talk about this whole concept of uh, uh, owning data and privacy in particular. And you've really jumped out there and and crafted what is uh, I've seen very few others do about uh, making a new way of thinking about this and, and obviously with an eye towards uh, creating new, uh, a new paradigm for doing it. So Elizabeth, it's great to have you on the, on the podcast. Um, I'll let you open, but uh, let, if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to get into your latest, some of your latest pieces and your latest thinking on this.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really excited about this podcast. I think it's it's timely and it's an important conversation. Um, and obviously, uh, you have a great vehicle for talking about these issues here. Um, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's, um, (laughs) this is a question I've been spending the last 12 years thinking about, um, in various contexts in various countries, um, and in different roles as well. And so I think as a result, I tend to have a a slightly different perspective um, than certainly lawyers in the space who have been focused, you know, in one particular area of the law or in one jurisdiction um, or kind of coming at it from one perspective. Um, And I think what I've been noticing is that we get really stuck on data. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things I wrote about, I think last year was this idea that um, we're a little bit distracted by data. So there's just there's so much data right now that it feels like the issue, the kind of primary issue um, to grapple with. And my perspective on that is, it's actually a bit of a red herring. um, And that what we really need to be focusing on are people and their rights um, Mm -hmm. and and people and safeguards, and fundamentally how we protect people. Um, Because when we start with the data, I think sometimes we lose sight of what the impact is on on people. And so my whole thing now, I'm actually um, working on a a book uh, on this forthcoming. Um, All right. (laughs) Yeah, so we can talk about that a bit, but um, it's about the future of data governance. And my whole idea is really that we need to move beyond these ideas of data protection or data security or data privacy and think about people protection and you know people um mm-hmm. and, and really reframe the conversation and i think we're going to end up in a much better place but i know that's a really broad start so i'm happy to dive into specific questions
3: well oh no it's uh, great because that, go ahead yeah, yeah i think that yes. uh, the, that's a great segue into something you wrote relatively recently that deals with uh i think both sides of the people protection equation which is something like blockchain passports for uh for covid yeah. um so I'm not sure when people are going to be listening to this right now. We're in the middle of the COVID crisis. Nobody really knows uh, much about the, how it's being transmitted. Nobody knows when a vaccine's coming. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns. But one thing that's been proposed is this idea of using blockchain to uh, let people cryptographically prove that they have had COVID that, or that they've had a recent test or things like that. And um, And there are two sides here, right? There's the side of we want to protect the public, and there's also the side of we want to protect the individual, and maybe there are privacy implications here.
2: Yeah, um, and as you mentioned, you know, I've been writing and thinking about this very publicly. Um, the way that I'm thinking about it is, I generally, this is whether blockchain or any other technology is implicated. I generally don't think that crises are the right time to introduce, you know, highly experimental untested at scale technology of any kind. (laughs) Um, And, you know, with blockchain, I mean, certainly, you know, we've had uh, more than 10 years of, you know, an industry kind of experimenting and building out use cases and um, grappling with some of the legal issues. Um, You know, I've been working on blockchain issues for about five or six years now. Um, But we, we haven't had any real at scale deployments of the technology beyond certain limited use cases, obviously cryptocurrencies being, you know, the preeminent use case there. Um, And the context for cryptocurrencies and a payments infrastructure is not not easy to transpose (laughs) into a context around um, really fundamental human rights of people, Um, rights around autonomy, around freedom of movement, around freedom of assembly and association, around privacy, around data protection, Um, around, you know, the right to earn a living, um, all of these fundamental rights that are implicated um, by the potential introduction of something like a blockchain-enabled immunity passport. And so my concerns are um, really at that meta level. And I think what I saw happening in the conversation and why I felt the need to weigh in uh, was that I saw a very micro conversation happening around tweaking specific implementations, around, you know, adjusting um, what kind of proofs are being used or looking at, you know, whether uh, a did format is used or some other type of identifier. And I just wanted to elevate the conversation to the level of, you know, taking a step back to say, <laughs> let's contextualize this. Is this a good idea, you know, as a, as a first question? And then, you know, what are the concerns? And um, just offer that broader perspective. Because I think what happens is we get really excited about the tech. We, we start doing the building. You know, we, we work around these very, you know, micro questions and we, we totally lose sight of the big picture. Um, and I just think as somebody who's worked in a lot of different, you know, countries and a lot of different fields, um, I tend to have a broader perspective. And given how close I've been to the tech, I really felt a need to speak up about it.
1: Yeah, it's it feels like um, actually very reminiscent of uh, just post nine eleven and the Patriot Act. And essentially, like the to your point, uh, um, broad, deep action in a moment of crisis better be really well thought through, because the implications are enormous. Um, you know, yeah, potentially and I think as that's true. we're still working through the you know the kind of the ramifications of all the stuff that was went through with the Patriot Act in terms of you know h- rights, human rights, fundamental kind of things. So,
2: absolutely. Anyway, that's yeah. I think that's some of my perspective. So, I actually um, you know my first job at a law school was at DHS. And um,
1: interesting. Wow.
2: And I was um, in the GC's office at DHS. And, you know, this was um, long after 9-11. And yet all of that infrastructure was still in place. And I think that was really eye opening that it really just opened my eyes to the fact that these temporary measures are rarely, (laughs) you know, undone. Um, And so I I hold that. Yeah. In this context, I mean, certainly in any, you know, disaster emergency, there's always um, the, the urgency of, the short-term always overtakes the kind of, you know, long-term perspective of what's the implication of this um, in the long run.
1: Yeah, well, talk, talk if you will, can you, let, let's get into the, this context of human rights um, framework, um, because I, you know, I and kind of explicated for, for the listeners, because I think it's, you know, one of the, it, it, the conversation in the blockchain world, for those who are not privy to it, or it tends, like you said, to be very focused around the what the tech was originally or envisioned to, to solve and it tends to be it flow from there even at the theoretical level as well and it, like when I heard your arguments around human rights you know being having trained and worked as a human rights attorney and in that context it's like well yeah that makes perfect sense why didn't I think of that well because you know we've been in this conversation talking about you know how do we how do we use other arguments to be able to advance this for the common good and it's like well let's first actually examine the approach we're taking
2: yeah i think what happens and i mean this is you know pretty universal um you get into these silos and these echo chambers and it can be hard to zoom out um you know there's also a cultural difference here where um we certainly have a much more market-based approach to things like data governance in the u.s than we do than you know certainly other countries do. Um, and I think the blockchain ethos in particular, because the genesis really was around cryptocurrency, because the genesis really was around transactions, um, assets, you know, propertization, um, it's not surprising that the data governance applications and thinking around data would also take on the same properties and have this sort of market-based ethos. Um, I don't think that was necessarily thought out as the best outcome. I think that was a product of, you know, the origins of the technology. Um, But as I said before, I don't think that what's suitable for, you know, one use case is necessarily universally suitable. Um, And from my perspective, particularly because, um, so I I lived in London from uh, 2012 to 20, just before the referendum. So uh, beginning Mm. of 2016 and um you've done my... a lot
1: of interesting things Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> for sure
2: well i mean i think this is where my perspective comes from but i you know at the time um that i moved to london it was around the first draft of the gdpr um mm. and it was something that i worked on from the first draft to the last draft and really saw the evolution there and the conversations happening in europe um at the time around you know data protection and data governance um and what was really important in that context was that europe already had all this foundational architecture around human rights in the mm-hmm. European Convention on Human Rights, but also building on, you know, sort of international human rights law. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, the conversation was already kind of framed, you know, in that context and and building upon, you know, the directive before it and other um, other laws in Europe like, like the E-Privacy Directive. Um, so there was, so I think the sort of cultural, you know, um, germination of, of data governance really plays out in what the ultimate framework looks like. and. What I see happening in the US is, there's still this hyper orientation around the market in so much mm-hmm. as even our most, um, you know, sort of <laughs> progressive data privacy proposals, whether it's CCPA or others, are still very consumer oriented. So it's mm-hmm. always this notion of the consumer. It's always in the context of a commercial transaction. It's never brought into the scope of like a citizen or a person <laughs> or a human. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we just continue to fall short and are never going to capture the full array of what's happening.
1: Yeah, I know. And I plead guilty to uh, falling into the discussion sometimes. I think about, you know, even the proposals around regulating blockchain broadly, you know, the, the key things I always point to for our protection of consumers and protection of investors. But that's because the institutions that are set up with regulatory authority in general, broadly speaking, cover those two use cases, if you will, and not, you know, we don't have a effectively a human rights enforcement or human rights, um, based, uh, our institutions, at least at the federal level are not set up like that. And I think that's, I think that's really important, um, uh, perspective to bring into it, Elizabeth, because it's not, you know, I think we continue to see that in a lot of other arenas, uh, uh the, and the difference having profound effects, uh, frankly, from what the U S often is, is, is pushing and what you'll see, uh, mainly from Europe at this point, because well anyway that that's a whole nother conversation but yes i I, I think it's um uh, I'd love to continue on this, but what i what I really want is you to tease your book a little bit more and and get into some of the you know kind of what the what the structure of a human rights framework in this context would look like.
2: Well, what you're describing is actually really relevant because um, the the sort of history of data governance is really relevant to examining, you know, or to, to really projecting what the future might be. And if you look at the history, um, you know, the U.S. was actually at the forefront of this, uh, both of the development of international human rights law, you know, as far back as the universal declaration, but also in terms of, you know, the emergence of um, ARPANET and the origins of the internet and... The mm-hmm. prominence of the U.S. and the U.K. in that in that context. Um, if you look at the early the earliest data protection laws um, at the national level, um, we were talking about primarily laws relating to or governing public databases, so databases mm-hmm. of government agencies um, that had data on their constituents. And so the context actually wasn't one of you know the private companies or the commercial sector. It was it was very much this citizen, this constituent relationship between government and citizen, um, and so those, and and that's just because the use case at the time, and the, you know, the earliest laws were in the 1970s, 1980s, was this context of the government having you know data on their citizens, and so you already had this sort of um, social contract in place, um, just given the nature of that relationship, that is very different from the context that we often think about this in now. Um, And when you look at something like, you know, the 1974 Privacy Act in the U.S., that was also governing the the public sector. It was that relationship between Mm. government and constituent. Um, And we kind of lose sight of that now when we're really focused on on this consumer commercial relationship. Um, And, you know, this, I think, has led to a lot of holes in the way we think about, you know, like we, um, I think people are still very concerned, obviously, about government surveillance. And they're concerned about corporate surveillance or surveillance capitalism. Um, But we haven't kind of looked at, I think we need to look closer at the relationships between people and then uh, the parties implicated in this data governance conversation and what the nature of those relationships tells you about things like power dynamics, about rights, civil rights, human rights, um, about, you know, other actors who might be involved and about the, the potential implications.
3: So Why do you think we lost uh, You're yeah, sorry, sorry. looking at some of the, the more uh, I'd say progressive uh, data, data governance regulations out there Something like the GDPR uh, I, I think you've written about how it, it, it Mirrors uh, the fair information uh, the Practice principles in you know, Some subtle ways but definitely very present ways um, So What can we be doing better? Where are the places where you see these uh, These holdovers from an Ancient kind of archaic Database based uh, schema and what, what should it look like?
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So we still think about it in this one-to-one relationship where both parties are known, right? right? And there is a pre-existing relationship there and there's a preexisting context and there's a predetermined use. And I think where we've, and you're right, that the fundamental principles of the GDPR are very similar to the FIPS. Um, now, I think the two core innovations of the GDPR are, which I've written about, are you know the the, the expanded notion of data portability is certainly one innovation, um, mm-hmm. even even above the you know directive before it from 1995, and also um, this notion of data protection by design and default is another core innovation that's really trying to shift the burden away from the individual and onto the organization or the entity. Um, but I think you're right that those principles are similar, and I think where we need to start going is we need to recognize the complexity of the the data ecosystem now the complexity of the digital ecosystem where we're not in these one-to-one relationships we certainly don't all have transparency on who's who's on the other end of of, you know data Um, and the data flows are a lot more complex and they're also not in the context of a database right they're in the context of the ambient environment the built environment they're in the context of iot they're in the context of um really everything smart cities. They're, you know, increasingly going to be in this very ambient, very, um, this animated context that goes well beyond the graphical user interface. It's going to be a voice interface and a brain mm-hmm. machine interface and, you know, neuro hacking and all these technologies that are emerging where if we keep thinking about this as a one-to-one database, you know, structure, we're just not capturing anything, um, in terms of what's really going on in the universe. And so, um, that brings me back to this idea that, you know, we have to really start from the human and the person and think about the impact on people rather than focusing on so much on the data itself.
3: So then maybe let so, me ask you a, maybe a tougher follow-up question. So take the GDPR yeah. and go back, you know, 50, 60 years when when it really was, we were dealing with one-to-one database relationships, all the actors were known. Do you think the GDPR is, would have been a really useful governing structure in the 70s and 80s?
2: So I think it's still useful because I think what's happening now is, I think it's still useful because it's predicated on rights and those rights theoretically can apply even in more complex situations. It's just, we have to be more imaginative about how we apply them and about enforcement. Um, But I think the reason that I'm not ready to give up on it (laughs) is because we have massively under leveraged the GDPR. So we, I think we utilize, you know, a much smaller percentage of what is available to us. And this is not just the GDPR. This is true in terms of FTC enforcement. This is true in terms of, you know, even with the FTC, look at the unfair and deceptive kind of standards. We lean very heavily into the deceptive side of things and we haven't enforced the unfair side of things. And so I'm very reluctant to keep layering on new laws and new laws when we haven't leveraged what we have. Um, And with the GDPR, you know, go back to these sort of two core innovations. We haven't actually enforced data protection by design and default. We have not enforced core principles like data minimization. We have not enforced, you know, true data portability. There's so much that, um, and this is limitations of enforcement, and there is so much untapped potential in the law that what I'm worried about is by trying to introduce a new law, we're kind of deferring and delaying the conversation and we're not addressing any of the existing problems. I hope that makes. Yeah, sense. Yeah, that's.
1: I I think that that pe- that part of your argument really st- uh, struck me. It, it it the whole question of enforcement is one that um, I think it's it's not by accident that it's not discussed. I think it it has everything to do with like you had alluded to power relationships. Uh, I think about the the in a different slightly different context, but environmental laws, particularly in California, have relied on a couple different things to make them not just great on on book on the book, but uh, in real life. Uh, citizen enforcement that is private uh, attorney general uh, built into those and things like the unfair business um, code, the um, uh, unfair competition laws, which would allow for action to be taken on behalf of the public where there's unfair competition, which was broadly defined. And I think those kind of things have allowed clean air, clean water, toxics laws to be enforced where you have uh, you'd have to rely on just a public nuisance or some other you know common law uh, basis, and it's it's led to you know frankly the outcomes have been have been um, uh, nation leading if you will. I, I think that to me and this question of enforcement always is something which good laws need and and they're thought about much less than the you know, the, the uh, policy itself. Uh, But to me, it's like, uh, unless it's enforced, it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's essentially not even worth the paper it's printed on. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about what that means, because we often go to looking at budgetary authority for enforcement. uh, But it's, it's really a broader question. It's, it's um, public education, it's, uh, you know, private attorney general uh, uh, provisions, and it's, and it is enforcement as well from, relevant government agencies. So like on the enforcement uh, part of it, you want to talk about what's your vision about how we get a good to great law to to be uh, in real life, a good to great um, uh, making the world a better place.
2: How do we actualize it? Yeah. And um, so we need to really test it. You know, it's kind of, we need to start market testing our laws in, in some mm-hmm. way. It, it's really, I mean, it's only when we have the strategic litigation, whether it's, you know, Max Schrems or whether it's, you know, Ravi Naik and the Cambridge Analytica, folks, it's only when we have, mm-hmm. when the, when the, the kind of theory of the law is really tested in the field, do we get any progress. And so I do think it's really important that in the imperfect laws that we might have here, for example, that we have private rights of action and that we have enforcement by the AGs and that we have these different mechanisms for doing that kind of stress testing and that um and for starting to bring clarity to some of the you know the tremendously vague um areas that are that are in these laws um but i think it's also recognizing that no single law or uh or legal framework or you know legal domain can do all of the work like for me it's uh-huh. never going to be about just a data protection law or a privacy law it's going to be about competition and antitrust. It's going to be about consumer protection. It's going to be about human rights. It's going to be about this array, this kind of composite approach, because the, uh, the privacy law or data protection laws is only as effective as the context of the market in which, you know, these companies operate. And um, it, all of those kind of macro factors, I think, are really important in terms of, of the actual efficacy of people's own individual rights and their ability to actually enforce them. Um, so we saw, you know, and since the GDPR took effect, I mean, we've seen some of the most meaningful sort of what we call data protection, uh, actions have actually come from antitrust authorities and regulators in, in Germany Mm -hmm. and other places. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't think that we should expect, you know, a privacy law to fix a lot of these issues.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that I I completely agree. I think the, um, one thing it also triggers is, uh. Uh, our current context globally on uh, dealing with uh, COVID-19. And there are a lot of places where there are public health, um, essentially public health professionals with all the right credentials and all the right experience are giving all the right guidance and there are laws to back it up. And yet we're still, that only gets us so far. And then we have to rely on actually people following and not just following, but leading into a new way of, of interacting, right? So it's like, it's the cultural context, frankly. And so there is an element that even the best law, the best implementation of it, and even the enforcement, you, you can't rely on that only. And I, I think it's, you know, it's striking both the need for government in the, this, this current crisis, the need for government, the need for law, the need for a rule of law, but also the limitations of it. And if we're going to do, you know, that it sets the framework in the direction, and yet it can't be done without all these other things. Um, yeah, do you, I
2: completely agree. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're seeing this play out so well in certainly in the COVID response in terms of, um, you know, I think everyone expected the EU to be ready. And okay, look, they've got the gold standard of the data protection law. Surely right. they're ready. And it hasn't really played out that way. You've actually seen, um, you know, this controversy over decentralized versus centralized contact tracing apps. You've seen Apple and Google come in and set the terms with their API and tell countries what they can and can't do and collect. Um, you've seen a huge lack of trust, you know, in the public. Um, every time these these you know surveys and polls are done, uh, people are very um, reluctant to, to download or you know to to use these apps because they don't trust what's going to be done with the data. Versus you know places like um, Taiwan and South Korea and Singapore, mm-hmm. where it's not necessarily about the robustness uh, a robustness of a law or regulation; it's about um trust in the government, <laughs> in right. the fact that there is civic infrastructure and public infrastructure, certainly in Taiwan, where you know there's a very robust culture of civic tech um, and civic infrastructure that's not owned by the public sector. Um, and I think mm-hmm. those things definitely played a huge role. And that does speak to the fact that um, the sort of cultural attitudes around data and the relative trust in whether it's government or large companies. Um, is a really critical piece of this that is very much overlooked. I don't know that you can engineer a law around that. <laughs> um, I do yeah. think you have to cultivate that, you know, at at the civic level.
1: Yeah, and, and it just, it speaks once again to your point about data is, it, it, if it's real, it it is a way of uh, describing something else that's that's real, like a person. But it's not the same. <laughs> it, it, you know, I think that's what we, we get lost in the, like, the data, is the data actually captured? And once again, this is, a, I, I find myself fall in this trap. It's like, well, if it's captured by a sensor, then it's real data, right? It's not model data. It's not projected data. It's like, that's real data. It's like, well, that is a sensor capturing some kind of activity, which is, then there's a human associated or some other kind of thing, you know, yeah. CO2 emissions or whatever else.
2: Yeah, and how's the sensor configured, and what are the other constraints? Yeah. And I mean, I think we see this with the decentralized contact tracing apps, where you know they they don't know that there's a wall between people. You know, they're three feet apart, but on different sides yeah. of a wall. Um, yeah, there are so many limitations there that you know that speak to how useful that data is and what the implications are.
3: And I, I think that when you get into things like sensors and these, these different ways that you can collect data. Um, it sort of leads into a conversation about the other part of data. So we're talking a lot about governance, but then there's this, this very related idea of ownership, which I think you've also written quite a lot about. Um, so maybe just as a way to, to kickstart that, there's been a, a trend lately, um, I say a trend, it's sort of a, uh, it's a minor trend, but towards individual data ownership Towards this idea of, of building data marketplaces and giving the the user the ability to control, you know, where their data goes and and who sees it, um, you've had some thoughts on that. I think you're on the fence about how <laughs> how uh, how smart that is. Uh, although I, I think you also keep in mind the public interest. So I'd love to hear just m- maybe a more fleshed out version of how you're thinking about these these tensions.
2: Sure. Um, so I th- I think a lot of these uh a lot of the rhetoric around you know own your data and data sovereignty and these things i think is coming from a well-intentioned place um and aligned with you know certainly some people's interests and 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 sometimes even you know fundamental rights and things like that um i just worry that when you start taking that logic a little bit deeper um it starts to fall apart really quickly um and my perspective is that um I mean, you know, as you've mentioned, I've written about this extensively. Um, I am really concerned about the the second, third, and fourth order effects of uh, this idea of, of of owning your data. Um, I think certainly there are, you know, the very obvious logistical challenges about you know questions around whether data even has the properties of, of something that can be owned in any meaningful way um, mm-hmm. from the perspective of property property law or a property basis. Um, but I think my 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 much bigger concerns are around this question of um, what are the limits of markets? And I think about this question a lot. Um, and one of the most impactful courses I ever took um, as an undergraduate was, was Michael Sandel's justice course where you know, he asked about what are the moral limits of markets. Um, mm. And certainly, you know, I'm inspired by Shoshana Zuboff's work um, and others who asked this question of whether you know, we want everything to be subject to the market. And we want everything mm-hmm. to be subject to propertization or commodification. Um, or you know, trade. and I think from my perspective, there is a danger to allowing um, to, to removing all limits for markets. Um, and I think there are good public policy reasons, you know, human rights reasons, uh, ethical and dignity based reasons to actually impose some limits um, on markets and to view some things as sitting outside of uh, something that is propertizable. And I would put um, not all data, but I would put certainly personal data. Um, in that category. Um, and you know, I can expand on that, which is to say that I think it's extremely naive to think that anyone can control their data. Um, and I think it's also a bit reckless to put that burden on anyone to have to manage um, their data. And there is, um, not only do we not have you know a full picture of <laughs> all the data implicated in just being alive today and, and in going about mm-hmm. your day, um, but I, I I don't think people should have to be in that position um, because some people are going to be in a much more privileged position in respect of managing that than others. And I think it's going to put an undue burden on the most vulnerable, um, the, you know, already marginalized uh, minority groups and others. Um, and I just, I think it's a very, frankly, naive position to take.
1: Uh, so are you, point would it. you, would you be, um, sorry, this is like just one thing. Sorry, Ruben. Uh, would you be advocating for kind of a policy differentiation, like an uh, accredited investor uh, approach? Is that what you're, no. or is it more just? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I, certainly not. Um, I I don't think that fixes kind of the problems of this uh, this propertization, this market orientation around data. I think there are fundamentally there is a relationship between human dignity and how that sometimes is captured or expressed in personal data, and I think. Um I I also think that it, it as I said, there the asymmetrical relationships at this stage, you know, in terms of uh power, in terms of capacity, in terms of resources, um, in terms of um capacity to to engineer behavior, I mean the asymmetries are so vast that I think for anyone to actually, you know, I, I just don't think it's possible for anyone to affect effectively manage all of their data. You know, what's their data? If we take a group photo of this, you know, is it your data? Is it my data? I don't know. I just, um, I don't find that a useful exercise. I find that a really good exercise potentially for lawyers who could make a lot of money off of adjudicating these claims. And I also find it a good reason for Facebook to say, we can't give you your data because it's not your data. And I just, I find it, um, it creates a lot more logistical hurdles than than it solves any of the meaningful problems that people have. Um, I'll take a breath there.
3: So, <laughs> I, I was going to ask for just a, a quick clarification. Um, so one of the things that I I appreciate about the way that you write is you tend to kind of implicitly put everything on a spectrum rather than saying, you know, this is good, this is bad. It's, it's a much more nuanced take. Uh, so this idea of saying uh, that it's, it's naive to think that people can control their own data. I'm assuming that you're, you're thinking about, or at least I have an intuition that the idea of data control is also on a spectrum, right? I, even now you can control some of your data. There's some data that I've just sort of accepted. It's gone. Um, where are you pinpointing that, that, uh, that idea of people controlling their data and how are you thinking about what the limitations of that are?
2: Yeah. I'm very skeptical of, um, this is why I'm very skeptical of a lot of recent proposals for privacy legislation, because I think they're still in this sort of individual control paradigm, which I, I don't think is realistic, um, nor should we have to. So I think the way that I think about this is when we, you know, you or I walk into a building, you know, we don't need to know that it's structurally sound or, you know, that it's properly licensed or permitted. I mean, those things are displayed, um, mm. but it's on someone else to make sure it's safe, sufficiently safe, you know, sufficiently stable. Um, I think we're in a similar situation now with with data and digital where it is the built environment. And so it shouldn't be, <laughs> I shouldn't have to vet every, you know, second of my life to make sure that it's not, you know, putting me at undue risk. And that's kind of how it feels right now is that the, it's this excessive burden on the individual to do something that is just beyond for anyone. If we're, you know, we're deeply in this and <laughs> I, I cannot you, I don't have an accurate um, picture of of what's actually happening. I mean, it might be more sophisticated than some, but it's not not anywhere near accurate to to put that back on me. And then ultimately, what happens is by shifting that burden to the individual, um, I think it's also eroding their rights because it's really taking away the responsibility from the people who have the asymmetrical power and are in a position to um, architect a much safer environment. So I kind of think about it from that design standpoint.
1: Yeah, it's really, uh, I think you know, just, um, uh, in terms of getting people to understand the framework using the built environment as not just metaphor, but you know, it's, it's, this is just an extension, the next dimension of the built environment, if you will. I think it, it, it's, it's so clear when you think about it that way, then you think about, you know, public and there are rights and there are responsibilities, but they accrue to, for instance, the city with the sidewalks and the, and yeah. the paving or the, or the private, you know, the LEED certified building that's owned by Shorenstein, whatever it is, those, you, you, you actually appropriately place the responsibilities and the rights and the individual doesn't have to, like you said, worry about it, but also they don't, they, I mean, it's not up to the individual to make sure the city uh, works as it should, or as the collective feels like it should, so. Yeah. I think it's I think it's really it's a great it's a great way to um, get people to understand the implications of this.
2: Yeah, I think one of the major concerns I've had, I mean as you as you both know I've, you know, I did some work in the self-sovereign identity area and I think one of the growing concerns I had working in that space was that I saw companies loving this notion. <laughs> why yeah. wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they love the notion of shifting the burden to the individual and offloading some of the responsibility and the liability and you know, to me, that's such a dystopian endgame. Um, and I think, you know, here we are, we were told that the robots would free up our time for, you know, for better things.
1: <laughs> <And> for <if laughs> managing your data.
2: Cheap, <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, not something I want to be spending my time on in particular. Nevertheless, it's really important. And so, you know, I want to shift that burden back. And um, yeah, I think, um, you know, there have been, very few, but some. I mean, I think Senator, you know, Sherrod uh, Sherrod Brown's recent privacy bill that you know basically limits data collection to what's strictly necessary and and uh-huh. is trying to shift the burden back to the organization. Um, you uh-huh. know, is is potentially um, one of the the good ideas out there. Of course, it's going to get you know tremendous blowback from the lobbies, and um, uh-huh. so we'll see <laughs> we'll see if it goes that,
1: anywhere. The, the um, generally speaking, the mark of a good bill,
2: right. <laughs> 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 exactly. But I think we're just we're so um there's such a seductive uh, rhetoric around like mm-hmm. own your data, control your data, self-sovereign and but again, if you just take it a couple levels deeper, for me it just falls apart so quickly.
1: Well let me if I could just I know we're we're we may be at for this session running uh towards the end of it, but I wanted to like get your thoughts on something I've been um thinking about in terms of these types of data. Uh, and whether there are, we've been talking about personal data, but if there are, in the context of other types of data, um, uh, different ways to look at it. If I'm thinking in particular on um, uh, looking at climate emissions, uh, toxics, and other pollution, except the externalities as they've been defined by economists and by, frankly, big business, uh, of, of how we consume as humans and how we waste as humans. Uh, you know, how that is treated and the data associated now and how that is treated. And one of the things we've been thinking about and kind of, you know, uh, looking at, at advocating is the idea of a public right to certain types of data, that the public should have a right to know about carbon emissions, the public should have a right to know about the existence and the use of toxics, the public should have a right to know about these, because those are not private, that data should not be by law private and, and, and held behind whether it's you know data servers or any other way from the public because of the implications for the public and I and to me it's like that it's almost like that's a different type of data and and requires a, also a different way of looking at it what have you thought about that not trying to drag you into this whole other conversation but you know you do think about data like few others and I'd love to get your thoughts on, know, how to treat these other types of data.
2: Yeah, I I do think about that. I mean, I I think this is one of my concerns about the sort of, uh, you know, own your data, hyper individualistic approach is that there are, there are a lot of collective implications of data. And I think there are a lot of instances, um, you know, where, where the collective should, frankly, you know, (laughs) supersede the individual's interests in owning or withholding or, you know, controlling a, a piece of data or a data set. Um, and so that, you know, again, that's another reason why I'm, I'm not a big proponent of, of um, those proposals. I think in what you're describing, you know, Europe's taking an interesting approach there and its new, you know, strategy on data. I think this idea of the, the common European data spaces, um, you know, one of the areas mm-hmm. is, is the Green New Deal um, around, you know, climate and environment and energy. Um, I think there's mm-hmm. certainly utility to opening up. I mean, that that is one of the problems we have right now is that, you know, the vast majority um, of that information is controlled by private interests and it is overtaking the public interest. And we're seeing how, you know, what's happening in New York is terrifying to me. You know, I grew up in New York and I think this, yeah. this idea of the shock doctrine and of, you know, Eric Schmidt and others coming in to run New York. <laughs> um, in a way that is controlled by private interests and overtaking the public infrastructure is deeply concerning. And so, yeah, I would love to see some of that um, made available to the public and to governments. And I think there are cities, you know, that are doing some interesting work around this. LA is doing some interesting work around this in terms of um, urban planning and transportation. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'd like to see, you know, more cities. And and this goes back to the point earlier about uh, places like, you know, Taiwan that have really robust civic tech, um, and ways of actually making some of this accessible to the public, which then allows people to actually be more involved as citizens and to make, you know, much more informed decisions and actually participate in a democracy, um, yeah. where right now we just don't have the good information to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and to your point, by extension, um, uh, data and information is critical to democracy, and we we haven't even talked about that implication, but I think it's Uh, hopefully our listeners all are locked into that one, but I do think it merits a whole nother conversation. Um, Elizabeth, this has been spectacularly interesting, but more important, it's like a conversation people need to engage in right now. Um, uh, We were super excited that you got on the show, but we're really thankful for the work you're doing. Um, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts, but this was, this would, I would hope, be one of a series of conversations. We want to, of course, like, look forward to your book and we'll promote that. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure the kind of insights we'll you going here will. A little ways off, but yeah, I'll try, try and <laughs> keep <few> things
2: up. <laughs> one of many side projects. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, thanks. As I said, thanks for uh, kicking off this this series and this podcast. I think it's an important conversation. I'd love to see uh, a broader conversation around this because, we get stuck in the same loops, <laughs> um, and so you know, to the extent I can help, uh, broaden that conversation. I you know love to to continue to participate.
1: You're definitely doing that. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Elizabeth. It's really it great, great talk. It's yeah, fascinating.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah. All right. We'll take care. We'll t- we'll talk soon offline in another context. But it's been great.
2: Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Take- All right. Thank Bye. you. Bye. 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 <laughs>
1: Thanks for listening.
0: We'd love to hear from you, get your thoughts and feedback about the issues raised in the podcast and your ideas on where we should go next. Our Data is a podcast brought to you by the Blockchain Group and the Tech for Good project of Stanford's Codex Center for Legal Informatics. Thanks to the co-chairs of the Codex Blockchain Group, Tony Lai and Kushagra Srivastava and Codex Executive Director Roland Vogel. And special thanks to our producer, co-host and jack of every trade, Ruben Youngbaum. I'm Michael Schmitz.